It's episode 23 of Presentable, and I'm your host, Jeff Bean. This week, we've got my very good friend, Jared Spool, on the program. He's run the legendary consulting company, User Interface Engineering, for over 30 years, and is one of the absolute pillars of thought leadership in the design world. We discuss why so many companies are so terrible at hiring designers, and what you can do to take control of your career by hacking the interview process. So let's get right to it. So, hey, I was... um I was on vacation last week, and uh, it was fantastic. We rented a narrowboat. Have you ever seen any of these sort of traditional narrowboats from the canals in England? Uh, oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, they're like, so the one we had was six feet wide. Like a houseboat-like thing. It is sort of like a houseboat, but very long. Six feet wide, 52 feet long. And so you take them through these, yeah, I know, it's huge. It was a three-bedroom narrowboat because uh, we got all these kids, you know. Uh, and we put all the kids on the boat and went out. And you go through these canals, and it's, you know, the thing only goes like four miles an hour, and you have to work all the locks to go up the hills and everything. Anyway, it was super fun. But I was totally offline by choice. Read books. Got it. It's very, very nice. Yes. Oh, my God, what a luxury that is. And then I came back last week, and I'm reading the news, trying to catch up a little bit, like what happened. The big news is that uh, United Airlines drugged somebody off of an airplane, injuring them. Uh, used the police to get them off the airplane because they wouldn't give up their seat. And my first thought was, oh, my God, it was Jared Spool. <laughs> yeah, so many people reached out to me as if I'm some sort of expert on, on, on United abuse. It was it was absolutely I, I, I had to report in and say, I'm fine. I'm safe. <laughs> Check in safe uh, on Facebook. Jared has not yeah, been yeah. forcibly uh, I, removed. I, I do not have an official opinion on this story. Uh, I it, it does not seem un unreasonable from, from from my history but i you know because <laughs> uh, yeah i think everybody was thinking i would be the first one right you would be the first one after <laughs> it's got to be going on a decade now of tweeting to united about your experiences with their customer service i think you gotta get close yeah, to 10 years yeah. of that yeah uh <laughs> it's entertaining i uh try to find some of your greatest hits and link to them in the uh in the show notes uh, the, uh, uh, yeah, uh, Ken Norton uh, tweeted the other day that there is no better beef than Jared's United beef. <laughs> <laughs> that's great. It's oh, awesome. My, Mike Montero is of the belief that somewhere in the United headquarters, there's an intern whose job it is to every day go turn on the Jared is flying with us today neon light that is in the customer service center. <laughs> that's right yeah everybody's on alert they've got like the uh mission control the big screens up on the wall everybody's yes. standing at their terminal jared's flying <laughs> that's right uh that's good are you home now or are you on the road i'm i'm home i'm i'm uh uh i'm home until sunday i just got home yesterday hmm uh, uh you um, said you told me you were in san diego how was that I was in San Diego yesterday for a conference on content management speaking to an audience of, of mostly technical communicators uh, explaining to them that they are, in fact, designers. Yeah, yeah. Well, I like this meme that's been going around that everybody's a de- or not, not everybody's a designer necessarily, but that everybody is involved in the design of a of product. <laughs> You're playing it safe. I'm trying to. <laughs> <laughs> You're a wuss. Uh, no, I don't care. I called, I called all my engineers designers when I was doing typekit, and none of them seemed to mind, really. Um, right. No, the only know, people so. who seem to mind are people who, who think that somehow they will lose their, their stature as a designer if we are inclusive. 
which there is absolutely no evidence of. In fact, all the evidence is exactly the opposite, that we, in fact, will will help our stature because, you know, when you go, if you're learning to cook and you go to a great restaurant and you have this meal and you go, oh my gosh, I need to try and make this, and you go home and you try and make it, you won't succeed. And you'll suddenly have this new level of appreciation for what that restaurant did, what right. that chef did, that, that you, uh, you couldn't have when you didn't know anything about cooking. So the reality is that everybody will actually, all boats rise, right? And, and so if other people have an appreciation of design and understand that what they do is design, they will understand better the value you bring as a seasoned, experienced designer. But there are people who are just like, I just convinced somebody that design was important, and now you're trying to tell me that everybody's a designer? Then what do I do? I'm like, <laughs> you keep designing, and you help everybody else design, and you can make everybody else be designer. But they don't want to hear that message, so they just they get all pissy and, and, and call me an idiot. Which, you know, is not... Mutually exclusive. I can say that all designers, everybody's a designer and still be an idiot. There, there is, <laughs> these things are not mutually exclusive facts. There doesn't have to be either causation or correlation. You can just say both. That's both, right. Both can just be true. Yeah. That's, <laughs> that's right. Even idiots say amazingly, you know, wonderful things. I, I, what was that Peter Sellers movie about the guy who becomes the gardener who becomes president? Oh, God, Chauncey. Yeah. Chauncey. Yeah. Chauncey Gardner. Right? That was the mm -hmm. character. And that, that, yeah, I mean, you know. <laughs> we, we've proven that even idiots can become president. We have proven that. We have, they, yes. we have lots of evidence of that these days. That's true. Yeah. I don't know. You know, the, I think that was a conversation I had with Erica Hall from Mule Design, uh, partner with Mike Montero, who I, I think it was her. We were talking about the distinction only really needs to be what deliverables do we use to document the decisions we make as a team? And, you know, designers have different ones than engineers, but that's, that has no effect on who contributes to the decisions that influence the product. So that's kind of how I've been thinking right. about it. Right. I, 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 I think of it in terms of medium, right? So what's the medium that the designer works in? And, and to me, um, there's a guy at Frog, uh, uh, Robert Fabricant, who mm -hmm. said uh, that the medium of design is behavior and so designers work in behavior and anybody who's trying to manipulate behavior then is working in that medium and therefore they're a designer and we manipulate behavior in all different ways you know with the with the physical form of things with the software side of things with the the messaging all of that manipulates yeah. behavior. So all those people who are involved in that are, um, are designers. You know, even the licenses and uh, terms and conditions that we oh, produce yeah. manipulate behavior. So then, then, yeah, that's all doing it. And all these people say, well, if I contribute to a contract, am I a lawyer? Well, probably not, because to be a lawyer, you actually have to be licensed. But <laughs> were you practicing law? For a moment, there you were. Yeah, yeah. And, you know... You might not be doing it very well, but, you know, most designers don't design very well. So <laughs> that's the way Sturgeon's Law works. Sturgeon's um, Law. 90%. Sturgeon's Law. 90% of everything is crap. Oh, right. Do you know about this? So Theodore Sturgeon, science fiction author, uh, was at a, at a convention 
And somebody got up from the audience and said, you know, Dr. Sturgeon, why is 90% of all science fiction writing crap? And he thought about it for a second. He said, well, because 90% of everything is crap. <laughs> That's true. There you go. And you think about all the restaurants in the world, 90% of them are crap. You don't go back to most of them. You go back to the ones you really love. But, you know, think of all the ones in a, you know, two-mile radius of where you live. Most of them you would never go to a second time, even, even a first time. And it's true of everything. 90% of everything is crap because most people are not seasoned, experienced people, and therefore they don't produce very good stuff. Mm -hmm. But that doesn't make it any less of a restaurant if it's producing crappy food. It's still a restaurant. It's just a crappy restaurant. And everyone who's designing, most of them are not very good at design. But we can help them get better. And the more we help them get better, the better our designs get. If we think of them as designers and work on their design craft, they get better. I wanted to talk a little bit. So the, on the last episode, I had uh, Jessica Hish, uh, the, the letterer. I love designer. Jessica Hish. Oh, she's fantastic. Yeah. We, had a, we had a great conversation, though. We didn't actually get to talk about fonts at all because we spent the whole time talking about freelancing. Really, like, Jeff, down. what do you know about fonts? Uh, not as much as the, all the people I surrounded myself with. How's that for a nice... That's true. That's the way to do it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but she and I were talking about... Like I said, freelancing, but way down low level, like doing email and booking things and making sure the work stays good when you have to like tend to your business and stuff like that. And I thought that was really interesting, but it got me thinking a little bit about then the next step, which is whether you're freelance or in-house practicing as a designer, it's that marketing of your skills to advance your career. And I know you've thought about this quite a bit and you're thinking about it all the time. And maybe this is a good actually opportunity for me to sort of lay out that you and I are working together in a sense for a full disclaimer that you have over the last few years been developing a school to help train designers to have better careers, to do better design, to kind of, and, and you right. can say a little bit more about that, but that uh, True Ventures invested in that school. And so we're working together. I'm really happy about that. I'm very happy about that too. Yeah, I know. It's been great. But anyway, I thought we could talk a little bit about that process of helping designers both present themselves well and helping them figure out where they should be going or where they should be staying or things like that. I know you've thought a lot about that. I have thought a lot about this. So it's, and it's not just, you know, sitting in my room thinking about this. I've done a lot of research about this. It turns out you back up your opinions with some evidence from time to time. Yeah. I like that. Actually, I like that about you. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Well, in this case, I think it's more that I formed my opinions out of the pool of evidence that we have. I am often the type of researcher who has opinions and then goes out and tries to find the evidence for them. But I, I, in this case, I was more in the, in the frame of mind of, of having different opinions. And then as the evidence was evolving, I realized that, that I needed to shift where I was going. And the big thing, you know, so when we were, when we were designing... The school. So designing a school is an interesting endeavor. It's something I've never really done before. I've, I've done workshops and I, I taught at Tufts University for many years, but that, that was a class. But to actually design an entire school, you have to sort of think about things from, from all different perspectives. And, and for us, the school only succeeds if companies hire our designers. So we thought, okay, if that's really the only condition of success... I mean, you know, students can graduate, we can get money, but if they don't get jobs, yeah, we, we, won't, we won't have a sustainable business. So, so we have to have them get hired. They have to be awesome jobs. There has to be so many companies that want to hire our students that we can't, we can't graduate them fast enough. That'll mean the students get all great choices and they, they, they're in control of the deal and everything. So, so, so this is what we we're going for. And, and so we said, okay, if that's the end result, we have to start with 
the hiring managers. We have to we have to talk to them and say, what do you really need? And we went out and we started talking to them about about how they hire, who they hire, what they hire, what they hire for, what the jobs are, all those things. And in that process, we got on the subject. As soon as we would bring up designers and hiring designers, eyes would roll and they would go on these rants about nobody knows how to interview for a design job. And and they don't know how to talk about design and they don't know how to do it. And it turns out that it's what we learned is we started doing more research is that it's on both sides, right? The hiring managers and the teams that hire designers don't know very well about how to actually qualify a designer. They use all this sort of superstitious ritual that they've picked up almost almost always by reverse engineering interviews they've been on and saying, well, I got hired for those jobs, so that must be a good way to interview people. And and the candidates don't know how to present their work and how to talk about stuff and how to how to guide the conversation. And as a result, you get into these wacky situations where people just don't know how to talk about their work and and what they what they could do. And you know, the number one thing, so we did some research into we did a lot of research into this. And what we learned was that um the best hiring managers and the best hiring teams are smart enough to think about what they really want the person to do. They don't say, we're going to hire a designer. They say, we're going to hire our next designer to work primarily on building the design system for our enterprise app. Mm-hmm. And we need to take that design system, which right now our enterprise app has thousands of components and it, none of them were designed with the thoughtfulness of any looking at any other component. So we have multiple versions of buttons and multiple versions of calendar tools and multiple versions of everything. We need to figure all that out, figure out what the best thing is, come up with a single set of patterns, work with development to build components, uh, uh, get code components there, ship that out to the developers and all the other people who do design in our company because we need going into this into the living style guide and pulling out components to be the the fastest path of least resistance to getting code out so that that means the default is to use stuff in the style guide and we need someone who can do all that and when you put it that way the first question is well are there people who've done all that already and if there are people who've done all that already let's look specifically for that so we don't care whether this person has a good aesthetic sense we don't care whether they uh, understand Gestalt theories. We don't care, if, you know, any of those things. You know, whether they can tell us that, you know, the history of the Bauhaus or, you know, how to turn a letter form into a type, typeface into a font. What we need to know is, can they build a design system? Have they built a design system? Have they built a design system with a messy app that had thousands of components? Did they work with developers? Did they work with product managers? Did they figure out how to get this thing deployed? And if we can find someone who's done that two or three times in their career, that's the person we want to hire. And right. if we can find someone who's only done it once, is it close enough to what they did? And would do they understand the differences between our situation and theirs that they could do a good job here? Okay, then maybe we want to hire that person. And if we can't find anyone who's done it because we're in a community where those people just don't exist, what skills will we need them to pick up? And can we find someone who's picked up similar skills so they can learn how to do this? Because it's not rocket science. People have done it before. The skills 
are documented and out there. You can go read the work of Brad Frost or Nathan Curtis or any of these other bright people and get it done. So maybe that's what we need. But we have to decide. And we do this before we even write the job ad. And this is the problem that we saw with a lot of folks. You know, it's not unusual for someone to interview a design candidate, someone on the team, who found out that there was an open position an hour before they were asked to interview or before the candidate comes in saying, hey, we have a candidate coming in today. Oh, I didn't even know we were hiring. Yeah, could you interview him? Uh, yep. Sure. And what are they going to interview him for? Well, tell me about the Bauhaus. <laughs> <laughs> right? I mean, that's, that's what interviews are these days. Or, you know. What's your favorite uh, font? Yep. What's your favorite font? Or, or how many, you know, manhole covers are there in North Carolina? Or some other thing that that just doesn't actually reflect the work we want them to do but you know we need well-rounded designers who can do everything okay what does that mean right for you what does that mean does, it, does everything mean they have to be able to drive an 18-wheeler so this weekend <laughs> i learned about um uh, uh there's this service that brings mri devices to small regional hospitals and uh, hospitals that can't afford a half a billion dollar MRI machine, they pack them into an 18-wheeler truck and they drive it from, from little hospital to little hospital to little hospital, bringing MRI services. And the, the radiologist who operates the, the MRI device is a, is a trained radiologist, also a trained MRI technician, which in a big hospital are completely different jobs, also has to be certified to drive the 18-wheeler. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> okay. Now, you can hire a lot of really good MRI technicians for that job who would not be able to do that job. <laughs> right? Yeah, That's a very right. specific very job. specific. Yeah. Okay. So that's what a lot of design teams need. They need people... You know, when you say, I need a well-rounded designer, first question comes to mind is, do they need to be able to drive an 18-wheeler? And if the answer is no, it says, okay, well, then how well-rounded are we talking about? Because, you know... Right, let's narrow it down a little bit. Yeah, yeah. There yeah. are limits. <laughs> and so what are the actual limits? And that, to me, is, is the source of a lot of problems that we have with hiring um, folks. And so, you know, one of the things that when Leslie... My, my business partner, Leslie Jensen Inman, and I started mm -hmm. the school. We realized we're not only training the designers that are graduating from the schools. We have to be training the hiring managers and the teams to use those people effectively. And one of the things is how do you, how do you choose? How do you hire? Well, it sounds a little bit like almost like any project that gets started without having a fundamental understanding of both what the goals are and how we're going to measure right. our successful achievement of those goals. It sounds like you apply, apply the same thing to hiring. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, a client calls you up and says, well, we need to build more awareness for our product. It's like, okay, let's talk about what that actually means. You know, right. what does awareness in your world mean? Right. When, when you say your customers aren't aware of your product, does this mean that it's, you know, is it the case that, that, 
that they have no opportunity to intersect with that problem? Do they do they not have the problem? Do they have the problem, but they don't realize you're a solution? Do they know that you're a solution, but they don't realize you're good enough? Do they know you're a solution and you're good enough, but they think they can't afford you? Do they know you're a solution, you're good enough and affordable, but you're too complicated to actually get started with? You know, what, what is the thing that, that, that stops awareness, right? You know, Microsoft Vista didn't have an awareness problem except for the fact that nobody wanted to use it. And, uh, but everybody knew about it. You know, everybody knew that it sucked. United doesn't have an awareness problem except, you know, most of their flights, they don't drag people beaten off a flight. It's, you know, but they somehow or other they can't get that into the news. Right. So a, uh, what could a designer do coming into an interview and realizing that this is kind of one of those t types of interviews? Or let me ask you a question a little differently. Is there diligence a designer should do in the job search before they find themselves in that position? Or is there something they can do to try to change course uh, you know, in an interview when they do find themselves there? Yeah, there's a, there's a ton of stuff. There's a yeah. ton of stuff. So the first thing starts with uh, whale before you're looking for a job, right? You need to be collecting the evidence that you can do the job while you're doing the job you have. And if you're going to school, you need to be collecting it out of, your, out of the work that you do. And by evidence, I mean you need to collect the artifacts and the stories and the, the insights and all the pieces of what you did to solve the problem. So if design is really about solving problems, then uh, you need to be designing the, the, you need to be collecting the process by which you solved problems. So we do this with the students. Every Friday, the students take time and they collect up everything they did for their work. And for the last, because they've been, our first cohort started in October, so, so we're now in our sixth month. Uh, until recently, they didn't know why they were doing this. They were just told to do this. And, and we said, you, you know, eat your, eat your vegetables. It's good for you. And, and so they begrudgingly collected photographs of their sketches and they wrote up the process they went through and they did all this stuff. And then they had Kim Goodwin in teaching the storytelling and scenarios course. Sure, and one, yeah. of, one of the uh, competencies, or what students have to do to pass our courses, is they have to achieve a set of competencies. And one of the competencies that they had to achieve was they had to collect stories for their portfolio and for their resume and for job interviews. And they were like, oh, that's why we've been collecting all this stuff. Uh, the stories are things like, we ran into this problem. You know, I didn't know how to solve this. So then I looked at this resource and I went to that resource and I did these tests and I made these sketches and I tried these things out in usability tests and I found that none of them worked. And then I would talk to this person and they gave me this insight and I took it from there and we built on it and suddenly we came up with something that users love, right? And, and it's that story that they're collecting and, and they have to collect the bits and pieces of it over time because, you know, you'll be in an interview and a, and a manager, a good manager will say, so tell me about a time you ran into a challenge and you didn't know how to solve it. That's got to pop straight to the top of your head. You've got to have a hundred of those stories, right, sure. right? And ideally, if you're being interviewed for the job for design systems, it's got to be like a design system problem right. that you that you talked about. 
So, I mean, that's the key was, yeah, yeah, you know, we built this whole thing, but we couldn't get the developers to adopt it. They kept using the, you know, they just kept doing their own thing. So we created this living style guide, and this was a, a, a little HTML app that I threw together with really crappy code, but I was able to, to use my coding skills that I learned to, to actually throw this together. And then developers went, oh, that's how the pull down's supposed to work. And it's like, okay. And then they rewrote the code and then developers were like, hey, I got better code for you. And then we put that in the living style guide, some of the crappy stuff I wrote. And next thing you know, everybody's using this code and just, that code is propagating its way. And because it was in the style guide, we only had to change it in one place and then it changed everywhere. It's like, oh, okay. You understand the depth of the problem. And so you're collecting all that up. So, so, so good designers are always doing that. Even if they can't, even if they're under NDA and they can't show the screenshots, I was able to just tell you a story about a design system. You have no idea what it was for, right? But I obviously communicated at a level of depth that if you're building a design system, I know more than people who've never built a design system. Even perhaps without a portfolio that can show it is what you're... Exactly, your exactly, yeah. exactly. The portfolio is just a souvenir booklet. <laughs> oh, I like that. That's great. Right? <laughs> Right? It's the souvenir booklet of your interview experience. The really interesting thing is, you know, in a job interview as a candidate, you have, there are two milestones you have to accomplish. The first milestone is you have to get the hiring company to fall in love with you. And, and this is a pure dating ritual, right? It's just, it's just, and, and if you go in too cocky or too coy or whatever, they're going to mm -hmm. be turned off by that. So it has to be an honest, like, wow, the more I talk to this person, I love them. I love them. They're like, great. And because it's about solving some problem, that's what designers do, uh, 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 you have to get them to fall in love with the fact that you are the right person to solve the problem. So you have to present everything. You have to bring out all the charm for solving the right problem. But then... Um, uh, the second part is that you have to fall in love with them. You have to decide, yeah, this is the team I could see myself spending significant energy with. I could right. work for these people. I could do this stuff. I could really do this. But a lot of people reverse that. And they're like, I don't know if I want to go work for them. They're sort of weird. Or that's an insurance company. They're sort of dull. Why would I want to go work for an insurance company? Right? They don't know anything about it. And they, they, they you know, that's, that's like, you know, this is the Tinder level of, of dating. This is not the way you form a long-term relationship with somebody. And, and work is a long-term relationship. Other than your personal, you know, life mate, your work relationships will be the deepest, most intense relationships you ever have. And anyone who's had crappy jobs knows that it's just as bad as any other bad dysfunctional relationship. And anyone who's had a great job knows that it's just as good as any wonderful relationship. These are people that you you have to want to be with and you want to support them and you want to do best for them all the time. Sometimes at, at you know with personal sacrifice, that's a real intense relationship. So mm -hmm. you're you're dating. There's nothing different about it. And there's uh, a couple things that are different about it, but we can gloss over that. That's okay. That's right. That's right. Yes. Unfortunately the people who think there's nothing different about it is what's causing a lot of the issues right now. Now uh, you're talking about Fox uh, News. Yes, now I'm talking about Fox News. <laughs> exactly where I was going. So the, uh, uh, oh my God. No, no, go you on. I'm that sorry. That was a tangent. Go on. <laughs> oh, don't get me started on that. Crap. I'm not. I'm not getting oh, you started. Okay. <laughs> okay. Okay. So 
where, yeah, so, so you have to get them to fall in love with you. So that's objective one. And the first way you're going to do that is by being really prepared, coming into it, getting to know them. So, so this might mean, for example, looking really closely at the job ad and not sending a boilerplate resume that you send to everybody, but instead crafting a resume that talks specifically to the points in the ad. And a well-written ad, and, you know, Sturgeon's Law, 90% sure. of ads are not well-written. A well-written ad will tell you exactly the things they need you to do. We're looking for someone to help us build our design system that will tie all of our stuff together. So then you you craft out the resume that talks to all of the design system stuff you've ever done. And if you've never done it, how you're going to learn all the things you've ever learned that are the equivalent of a big-scale design system so that you can prove to them that you could learn how to do this. Because they may be in a position to bring in someone who's going to learn it versus someone's going to do it. Mm, yeah, There's, yeah. All hiring managers have this sort of buy versus build mentality, right? Do I get someone who can do the work at a higher price or do I get someone at a lower price who can't yet do the work but has all the potential to do it, right? So mm -hmm. you're, always, you're always in this buy versus build thing. But so if you, if you don't have the direct experience... What's your plan for getting that experience? How would you actually go about doing that? Do that research before you even talk to them. And then the next thing is to, to try and get some sort of informational interview, right? Try and get an, an interview where you get to ask all the questions. Tell me about what you want the person to do. Tell me about, about what success looks like for this role. Tell me about the challenges you're feeling. I mean, why are you hiring this person now? You know, when I go into sell consulting work, it's not any different. Yeah, that's exactly where my, my head was going, right? Those first few yeah. meetings with the client where, like, I got to yeah. figure out if, if, I'm gonna, if you're going to be the right client for me. Right, It's right. the only way this is going to be successful, right? So. Right, and it's not that I'm pompous. It's that I have limitations as to what I can right. do. I can't drive an 18-wheeler. If you need someone who can drive an 18-wheeler, I'm not your guy. Right. So, uh, so, so what is it that, that's going to, to take? And oftentimes, I'll meet with a team and I'll be – you know, from a consulting standpoint, I'll be blown away by the team. And first question out of my mouth is, why do you need me? You've got a great team here. And almost always the answer to that question is the actual reason they're hiring me, not the one they told me coming into the meeting. It's like, well, actually, we have a great team, but they can't do this and they can't do this and they can't do this. I'm like, ah, okay. Yeah. Guess what? I can't do any of those things either, but I know people who can, <laughs> so I'm going to refer you to them. Right. Right. And and that's the conversation that often happens. The, the this has to happen in an interview, too. You know, you have to know what you you can do. And it's so like and you can go and you can say to a hiring manager, I have never built a design system, but I have been wanting to build a design system for a long time. And I've been thinking about how I would do it. And I've been reading, you know, all of this stuff. I've read everything that Gina Bolton's ever done and everything that Brad Frost has ever done, everything that Nathan Curse has ever done. And I've gone to their workshops and here's how I would start to tackle this problem. Uh, and I'm curious, which of these things have you done already? Have you yeah, actually collected yep. up an inventory of all the th components? And have you put them in one place? And have you gone through, you know, and, and, and sort of talk about all that and make it less of a interview and more of a conversation. And suddenly, you know, hiring managers get very impressed by this sort of thing because you're, you're solving their problem. You're not just filling their 
wreck. You know, yep. you're talking about solving the problem. And you haven't even said, this is the right job for me. You're just trying to figure it out. You're just trying to understand. And so that informational interview is really valuable. And that's, that's, that's important homework to do. And by the way, there's no shame in saying, I'm not your person. I'm not the right person to do this job. But I know somebody. Let me connect you. Because when you do that, you'll, you'll be remembered by that hiring manager for a long time. And when yep. they have another job that is the right thing, almost always when I do that to somebody, they go, whoa, 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 wait, 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 wait. What would be the right thing for you? You know, it's like, it's like okay, I want to find something for you because I really like you. I don't want you to go away right away. Yeah, no, that, I think that's fantastic advice. I want to back up a little bit to, to uh, how you were talking about... Fox News? We're going back to Fox News? <laughs> no, I'm not going to let you do it. Sorry. To where you were talking about your students collecting everything. And... Yeah, yeah. This is something that like, I've done my whole career. Uh, I think it has to do something with my, the fact that I studied history in college. And so, you know, uh, looking at artifacts and things like that. So You're also a hoarder. <laughs> you, you, know, you got the, the piles of magazines. When it comes to the work stuff, I just remember like every day, like taking all this stuff off my desk and putting it in a box and having all these boxes and going back and looking at them 10 years later and going, oh my God, this is great stuff, you know? Anyway, yeah. that kind of stuff I think is great. The, what, can you take that forward? Like where are you, where are you going to head with your students on this or, or advice for designers? If you're collecting all of this and you're crafting a narrative, what, what form does it take? Because you're not like you're not posting this stuff on Dribble and hoping to like, you know, get the attention of the person who's going to hire you. Uh, or, or is there some sort of portfolio that is unlike the ones that we typically see that is more valuable and more narrative based? I'm just wondering about form of all of it. Yeah, so, so it's story, right? The actual end product, you know, I, I do this thing where I, I pull up the, the very last scene of the, of the episode four of the Star Wars movie. You know the scene where, where they're all standing at the podium and getting their awards mm -hmm. and, you know, uh, 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 kisses happen. Um, uh, it's a little creepy because you realize later they're, they're, they're brother and sister. Uh, um, <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, no, I know the scene, right? Got the yeah, okay. The temple full of people, and yeah. So that's the that's the best part of the Star Wars movie, right? I mean, that's the that's the best part. That's the final scene, and <laughs> and that's exactly the thing we do when we show the screenshot of the final product. Like that's just the best part of the product, right? No, 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 no. It was the journey that was the best part. That, that actually was an insignificant part. That actually was a little creepy moment at the very end, and we don't really want to think about it anymore. That's, that's not what... No, none of the quotes ever come from that scene. And, uh, uh, but when all you do is show end product in your portfolio, that's what you're doing, right? Is showing the final scene. And the problem is the hiring manager looks at that, and particularly in today's world where design is always a group effort. It's a team sport. They're thinking, okay, well, which part did you do? What, what was your actual contribution to this? Because this is a big deal, right? You know, hey, look at Facebook. I designed Facebook. You know, okay, wh which part did you design, right? So you need to show the journey. You need to talk about the problem. You need to go from problem to result. And so now I'm seeing more portfolios like this. A, a, a lovely person on LinkedIn the other day connected with me and said, hey, can I share my portfolio? I'm like, yeah, yeah, I'll look at it. And, and, and she shared it to me, and it was, it was nice. She does good work. Uh, uh, but, and she described her process. 
and she and she described a nice process. It was a sweet process, right? And it was a sort of standard process of you know, I, I did sketches, I did testing, I did, I I talked to the stakeholders, I produced the stuff, and and we worked through it, and we got this lovely end result. It's great, except I didn't see anything that was her, right? I just saw a sort of standard design process. So she was able to. That's what she recounted. She did this standard design thing, but she didn't tell me when there was a challenge. What did it take to overcome it? What was it that was challenging? Because if I understand what's challenging for you, then I know immediately if you uh, uh, are going to balk at the type of challenges we have. Because are the challenges we have bigger than the challenge that you had? Are they actually our challenges aren't as bad as the one you ran into? You know, so just knowing the challenge tells me you know what challenges you tells me a lot. And then knowing how you overcame that challenge, the process you went through for overcoming it, which is not part of the standard process, because if it was part of the standard process, it wouldn't have been a challenge. So that tells me your resourcefulness. That tells me your tenacity and your grit and how much stick to you have. That tells me uh, uh, how much you collaborate, how much you go to... Uh, Outside resources, what types of resources you call upon? Are they resources that I would have expected a designer to use? Do you go outside the normal expectations and find inspiration and concepts from things that never occurred to me? All of those things are going to be really informative. And once we start to, to have those conversations, now I'm seeing you as, a, as who you are, not seeing you as a generic designer that's just like 100 other generic designers. Right, right, right. Yep, yep, yep. And, and, and so capturing that and being able to recount that, especially when you're in the middle of it, is actually really hard, right? So mm -hmm. diaries and daily logs and things like this turn out to be really important as raw material. But then you craft a story. And it's like any sort of storytelling. It has to have a main character. It has to have peaks and valleys, you know, places where you fall into despair and you don't think you're going to get out of it. You know, keep the audience with you. And then what did you do? What did you do? What did you do? How did you fight through it? You know, where did you almost give up hope? And then where did you come back to it? And, and boom, what was the key moment? And then how did you emerge victorious, right? All of those elements of story are the things. So you're talking about more of uh, more paragraphs and fewer pictures. Uh, you know, there are lots of great stories that show up in comic book form, right? Uh, <laughs> there are lots of great stories that have storyboards to them. I, I, I don't think you should restrict yourself to telling the story with only words. If words are your medium, feel free to use words. But, uh, uh, you know... I haven't seen a portfolio that's done it this way, but how cool would it be to, to get a portfolio that has little video clips of, of sort of the daily log, uh, you know, sort of like Matt Damon in The Martian. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. You know, telling the story of what he had to figure out. Right. Interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I just, I guess I keep coming back to the more, just being really pragmatic about it because of... That's such a cookie cutter approach to hiring yeah. in the in larger organizations. It's just you know they're like they, they want a standard resume and they want some pictures to look at and they're going to make their first. There's the recruiter who's doing the screening before you even get to the hiring manager is going to be filtering just on that kind of stuff. Right. This brings us back to Sturgeon's law. Yeah. Right. right. Yeah. 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 Right. Okay. Most of those processes don't do a good job. So uh, you know, a hiring manager who really wants to hire a great person. 
better not use a cookie cutter process because a cookie cutter process gets a cookie cookie cutter person. There are good jobs and, behind those processes, though. Like that was my experience at Adobe is that there were, you know, the HR machine was heavy and laden with this kind of very standard process. Uh, but we had many good jobs to offer outside of that. It was just very, very difficult right. as a hiring manager to get around that, you know, so. Yeah, but, but if so, so now this is I'm doing more research now uh, because I found answers all over the board to this question. Uh, when you were at Adobe. The the if you if you were at some tech event and you sat down at the bar and you started talking to this person and in your mind you're like oh my gosh this person would like be perfect for our team because of the stories they were telling you in that in that informal environment yeah. uh, could you get them into the system uh, could you get them could you get break could you get them into the HR system so that you could actually officially interview them yep Okay. The reason I asked that is because I was at a, a large financial institution the other day where actually that's against their rules. Oh, okay. Isn't that crazy? Yeah. A hiring manager finds someone perfect. They cannot, they, all they can do is encourage them to apply and they can't do anything to shepherd them through the system. Right. 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 And guess what? They were complaining about the crappy candidates they were getting through the system. <laughs> You're right. Exactly. <laughs> okay. And, and, and they're like, what can we do to get better candidates through the system? Right? And, it was, and this came up in the context of our students. They can't even hire our students. They can only encourage our students to apply. And they can't give them any advice as to what will make them look good. Because that would somehow give them an unfair advantage in the hiring process. As if it's not clear. And I get it. I, you have to... You have to remove bias. And that's where I, my head was going as well, right? To, but, to encourage, but, yeah, more diversity in workforce hiring and, 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 and right around no bias. No doubt about it. Yeah. No doubt about it. You have to do that. And there are ways to do that. But there is always bias in a hiring system because you need to bias towards people who are capable to do the work. If, you, if you're going to make the statement, we're going to remove all bias from our hiring system, then you literally pick people out of a, you know, there, you assign everybody a number. You pick, you you put them on ping pong balls. You put them in one of those lottery ping pong ball devices, of which there are companies that design those. You could go work for them, uh, 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 and then and then you know the ball comes down the chute, and you say, okay, employee fifty two, you have the job. Congratulations. Right. That removes bias. If you want someone who can do the work, you have to have bias. Now, if you want someone who can do the work, that doesn't mean you have to bias them towards you know some white dude, you can, you, there's a whole world of people who can do the work, who will be great at doing the work, in fact, could do the work better than many of the white dudes out there because, you know, Sturgeon's Law. So, so you have to design a system that allows those people to bubble up and make sure that you consider them, and then you hold them to a standard that has nothing to do with race or gender or sexuality or, or, or income level or, or disability or uh, any of the other biases that we have. Uh, you hold them only to the standard of, is this the perfect person to design the design system for us? And you gather all the evidence for that. Mm -hmm. And so a good hiring process is an evidence-gathering hiring process. It doesn't screen people out. It collects evidence. And the best, the, the individual with the best evidence that fits the job is the one that gets the job. And actually, that's not entirely true. A good hiring process, actually a great hiring process, doesn't look for the best evidence. What the great hiring process does is it looks for the first individual that has all the evidence that says they will do a great job. Because there could be a hundred of them out there and you don't need the best. 
You just need one who can do a great job because that's all you need done is a great job. Interesting. And so, so then the way you get past the diversity stuff is you actually give preference in the hiring process to collecting evidence from the people who uh, are conventionally disadvantaged. Mm-hmm. And you say, we're going to bubble them up so that we look at their evidence first. And the first person we find who can do the job, that's the one we're going to hire. And therefore, you will get a team that's way more diverse by, by doing it that way. Yep. Yep. And you can that's shift that. around the priorities to always take advantage of disadvantage. So if one party is suddenly getting disadvantaged because you keep looking at others, you can, you can randomize that, right? But you're always, uh, 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 you're always bubbling up the people who have been conventionally disadvantaged to be to collect evidence from first and then use a standard that has nothing to do with the with their disadvantage points sure. to 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 assess whether they are qualified to do the job. Yep. And yep. then yep, yep. Yeah, okay. that makes sense. Um let's let's look at the other side then. The yeah, you know, you were talking about the that sort of like see if you can get a pre-interview or an informational interview or, or right. things like that. What are designers looking for? Uh, or what should they be looking for if they're thinking about uh making a change, you know, to to further their career? Like, what should be the criteria they use for screening it out? So that's going to be different depending on where they are in their career, right? Of course. So, yep. so, so, um, so a young designer, an early designer, someone new to the trade, uh, they should be looking for a job where they're going to learn new things that they will want to be known for forever. Well, not forever, but for a while. Forever is a funny thing, right? But for a while, right? You know, it's sort of like being typecast. You, if you get a job doing something, the next time you interview, your all your experience is going to be in that job, right? So you're going to be you're going to be best applicable for that job. So if you get a job doing something that you don't find interesting, you're going to be stuck doing uninteresting stuff for the rest of your life. So 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 we have interns here at at Center Center UIE. And we have interns who are web developers, and we, we hire them primarily to do all of our HTML email, because it's really hard to find people to do HTML email as a career, because it's, it's sort of this dark art, and, they, and people don't like, like doing that. So we, we get these people who are like right out of ha- uh, the various uh, boot camps and academies, you know, those short programs. We hire them for, for six months. And the first three months they do, um, uh, they do HTML email, and then three months in we hire another one, and so they overlap for three months. And their their first job once we hire the other one is to train that new intern to do HTML email for the next three months, and then they get to choose whatever they do next, and they have to do some they have to do some project that advances their career and at the same time helps us. And we've had, you know, some of them have done like automation tools for our HTML email process. <laughs> Fantastic. That's great. Yep. Uh, some have redone parts of the website. We actually have a page for our interns and that's maintained by the interns. And so they, they built, one of ours did that. But a couple of ours have actually said, you know, HTML email, I know people don't like it, but I'm actually having fun. I'm learning how to make emails responsive. I'm learning how to embed video. I'm learning how to do this, do that. I really like this. And you know what? Companies pay big bucks for this because nobody wants the job. I'm happy doing this for a while. And they've gone on to get good jobs doing HTML email, really enjoying it, really sinking their teeth into this very niche thing that nobody else likes to do, and they actually enjoy it because there's lots of problems to solve there. I mean, getting getting 
modern day email to show up in Outlook 6 is hell. And But you've got customers out there who are still using old versions of Outlook or Lotus Notes or other pieces of crap, email clients, you know, Sturgeon's Law. Yep. So that they love that challenge. And I think that's what you have to do. You have to figure out what is it you want to be doing. Uh, but there's a rule. Never refuse an offer you haven't gotten yet. Right? Oh, interesting. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. so you don't turn an interview down because you don't think you like the company. Remember, step one, they have to fall in love with you. So you have to go through that process. And then you get to fall in love with them. And part of the falling in love with them is, is this the job that is going to give me the experience to get my next job, right? Yep. Am I so 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 you have to be thinking at least one job ahead. Now, if you're more senior, what you want to be asking, in my opinion, is who do you want to learn from? Right? Bosses, everybody who's been in the business for a while knows the fact that if you have a if you work for a company that's doing amazing things and you're working on an amazing product, and you have the world's crappiest boss, that job will be hell. Right, right. It will be a miserable job. But if you work at a company that actually doesn't sound that interesting, where the you know you tell people, I work for an insurance company, or whatever it is, it doesn't sound that interesting, it doesn't sound that challenging, but you have an amazing job boss who is always challenging you and you're learning new stuff and you're trying out new technologies and you're playing with new techniques and you're doing things at the at the edge of the state of the art and you're learning how to how to convince people that's worth doing and get the return on investment and all those things that's going to be a great job you're going to do good stuff you're going to have a great portfolio so when you're mid level or moving to senior you want to think about who's the boss I want to work for. What does that what was what's that boss need to be like? What will mm -hmm. I learn from that person? Because it's the boss that makes all the difference. And when you go interviewing, you can do things. You know, if you want to learn how to be more strategic and get your designs thought about in a more strategic setting, then you when you're interviewing and you're talking to members of the team, you talk to them about the work they do on strategy and who in the team does strategy work. Can I talk to the person who does the strategy work now? And how much support do they get from the boss? How much how much does the boss go out and help them negotiate that? And what what did they learn from that boss? And if nobody has answers that 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 tell you that the boss is actually useful in any of that stuff, you know, do you think you'll be the first one? You know, there's another sort of interesting part of the, the boss equation, which is, you know, like if you're in a developer and you write code for a living, uh, there's a really good chance that your boss up some tree in an organization will end up reporting to a CTO who reports to the CEO. That seems to be, or a vice president right. of, of uh, technology or something like that based on how the company yeah. is structured. But man, does it vary in design. Yeah. Like if you follow the path up from like, all right, I'm talking to you and you're going to hire me, but who do you report to? At some point, there's inevitably going to be some layers between you and the CEO that don't have design in their background, just because of the nature of, of where design has come up in business, I would say, over the last few decades. Right. Uh, that's always a very interesting bit of sort of archaeology to do at a company before you even think about uh, whether you want to work for them. Right. Uh, yeah. And so what you need to do is... Right. So the definition of design that I've fallen in love with is uh, design is the rendering of intent. Yeah. Yeah. And so you've got intent in the world. And uh, uh, how did you render that? How do you become that? So when you're when you're at that sort of senior level, you have to ask, how does this 
how does the company, how does the organization render its intent? Where does that get driven from? And as, as a design person, you want to be as close to that sort of, you, you want to be as close to where the intention's emerging from, because you're then going to be the, the key person to start rendering that. And, you know, when you're talking about design at that level, you're not just talking about pixels on the screen. You're talking about business strategy and business models and, and how, uh, how the workforce is structured to execute that and the tools that the workforce has to, to make that happen and, and all the things. Yep. And, you know, when, uh, when you call a customer support organization because you have a problem as a customer and the customer support organization says, what you want is very reasonable, but I can't give you what you want because my computer system won't let me change that. <laughs> right. Right? Exactly. Okay. That's, that's intention that wasn't rendered well. Right. And when you're that high up, you need to be able to, to, to reach over to the support line of the business and say, hey, we need to fix your tools because your tools are hurting in the customer experience. And so, you know, uh, to pick on uh, United for a minute, after you've checked in for your flight and you want to change your seat, there are two ways in the system that you can change your seat. One is you can view your reservation. The other one is you can check in for your flight again. If you try to review your reservation, it will show you a seat map but it will not let you change it. It says, I'm sorry, you've checked in for your flight. You cannot change your seat. If you go into the non-intuitive check-in menu and go through the process of checking in for your flight again, it will give you the option to move your seat and then you can move it. You got to write a book on United Hacks. Yeah, yeah. That, uh, I'll add that to the list of books I'm, I'm currently not writing. Uh, um, at, at some arcane level, this makes sense in business rules. Right. But it makes no sense to the customer who just wants to, to you know, an ILC has, has opened up and they no longer want to sit in the middle for four hours. You know, why can't you let them move into that seat? You can. You just have to know which way to enter the system. And, and that's a bad rendering of intention. And as a designer, as a senior designer, someone highly placed in the organization you have, to, you have to have your eyes and ears tuned to those types of problems and then be able to fix them. And you need, you need air cover for doing that. And the thing is, your boss doesn't need to know anything about design. They just need to give you air cover that says, when we have a frustrating customer experience, we want to do something about it. And mm. that's what you need to look for, is someone who really understands that user experience, customer experience, whatever you want to call it, goes from, on a scale, from extreme frustration to extreme delight. And everyone will give lip service to delight. But the question is, when are you willing to actually provide the air cover to say frustration is no longer acceptable, only delight is acceptable? Mm -hmm. and, and does the organization have a history of providing that air cover to allow the hard problems to be solved? Because in order to get that one problem solved, I'm absolutely convinced that the reason that, that United has those two different ways is that they have business rules in two different versions of their uh, uh, flight management system, their, 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 their booking system. And they've got legacy code, and someone's going to have to refactor some major portions of the code. And this could be easily a million, $2 million development project yep. to fix it so that no matter how you get to that seat map, you can change your flight, your seat. And that rejiggering is going to take some serious 
high level maneuvering to say this is a priority above some shiny new thing that makes global services customers just a little happier so that they keep <laughs> yeah. they keep buying from us and probably requires touching some of the fortran code back on the on the mainframe i would imagine yeah yeah absolutely yeah i mean yeah so i buy so i buy all of that like i think i think i completely agree uh but but i think i would probably qualify the statement that your boss doesn't need to know anything about design. I think that would probably, and I would qualify it probably again by the stage you are in your career. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think I think they need to they need to understand, and and you as an employee need to constantly be educating them on you as a, as my boss. You have this intention, and here's the journeys that I've been taking with my teams to get you that, and here's where we run into challenges. And maybe you can help us with those challenges. Yeah. And and you need to, but you don't need to necessarily know that we have a design system, and that in our design system we have components for a seat map. And in the seat map component, we actually have to have two versions: one that supports registration system A, and one that supports registration system B. Sure. B is the one in check-in, and the, and A is the manager reservations thing. And you know, there's a level of detail they, they really need to know, which is, hey, we've got this horrible customer experience. Customers are calling our support line because they can't change their seat when, in fact, they could change their seat if they knew which menu option to pick. And the, when we add up the total sum of all those support calls, uh, uh, that comes to $15 million a year. And when I talked to development about how much time it's going to take to fix this problem, they told me it's going to cost them $4 million one time. Mm -hmm. So we can, we can pay it off in the first year and then have all sorts of profit as a result as the reduced support call log comes in. Plus, we'll be able to reduce support backlog and all the other things that are costing us money. And the way we're going to solve this is through a well-designed user experience. Right. And that's the conversation that needs to happen so that, that that manager can then say, hey, my people who are in charge of well-designed user experiences think they can actually save the company a whole boatload of money by reducing support calls and fixing this development problem and creating better customer loyalty. Why are we not doing that? Right, right. And they don't need to need a whole lot more, but I don't think they need to need to know a whole lot more about design than it is possible you can do this. And here's how you're going to do it. They need to know enough to be able to trust that you are the right person to do this. Yeah, to get back to your point, who do you want to learn from? I think that's, again, stage in your career, right? Moving from yeah. simply practicing the craft and starting to think about strategy to being much more of a, you know, sort of owning strategy and, uh, and, and, uh, and using the, the broader user experience techniques to, to make that, to affect that change. But, um, right, and I'd even argue that, that owning strategy is part of craftsmanship. Right. It's just it's just an expansion of the craft beyond, you know, gestalt theories. <laughs> yeah, sure. Yeah, totally. Ah, uh, this was great. It's a good conversation. Yes. And I still need to talk about Fox. Uh, so we'll all right. have to have another episode for that. Yeah, we may or may not record that one, but that's fair. We'll do it. I promise. <laughs> <laughs> where can okay. uh, where, where should we send people? So first of all, there's the school. It's the center center dot com. Go check it out there. Yes. C-E-N-T-E-R-C-E-N-T-R-E dot -E -E com. Didn't you get like all the different versions of that too? So it... I think one of them still costs like $5,000. Oh, goodness. Okay. Well, I'll put a link <laughs> in the show notes. Just go there and click the link. Um, yeah, that's perfect. And uh, your 
Jared's Pool on Twitter. That's a great place. It's always fun to follow you there. And where else? Where do you like to send people for your writing? Uh, I'm, I'm writing a lot on Medium these days. Okay. So, so there's that. And at uie.com down articles, uh, there's a lot of stuff there. Great. We'll send people over there. You know what? It's always just such a pleasure. Uh, I hope we get to hang out in person soon. Let's make sure that happens. Yes, yes, yes. Thanks for being on the show. Thanks for encouraging my behavior. And that's another episode of Presentable. Hey, got any questions? You can email us at hello at presentable.fm or get in touch via Twitter by following Presentable FM. We hope you've really enjoyed the show. And if you do, could you take a moment and give us a rating on iTunes? It really helps and we'd really appreciate it. Thanks for listening. And until next time, I'm Jeffrey Veen and this was Presentable. Presentable.